Jesus, we have you as our only comfort in life and in death. We take this comfort knowing that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul and life and in death to you, our faithful Savior. You have fully paid for all of our sins with your precious blood, and you have set us free from the tyranny of the devil. You watch over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from any of our heads without the will of your Father. In fact, you say all things must work together for our salvation. Because we belong to you, Christ, by your Spirit, assure us of eternal life this morning. And would you make us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for you? Jesus, we also ask that you would comfort us this morning with this teaching. We ask that we would hear your voice, that we would submit to your call, and that you would help us to see just how good your church is, this church, this body that you've created and purchased by your blood. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to play a game this morning just to, to start off. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe a scene. Okay, I'm going to describe a scene and then you're supposed to answer, where are we? Okay, I'll describe a scene, then you guess, where are we? Scene number one, it's in Denver. And it's a huge structure, maybe 80, maybe even 100 feet tall. I don't know exactly, but it's really huge. And as you go inside, on the perimeter, you see stadium seating that could fit over 18,000 people. Okay, and in the seats, people are wearing colors of midnight blue and bright yellow and red. And as you go down the seating, there's men in shorts wearing jerseys. And there are numbers on the front and names on the back and these logos on the front. And these men, they have this orange ball and they're bouncing it, passing it back and forth to one another. And sounds fill the air as well. Sounds of whistles and horns and cheers and boos and intense music like defense, defense. So now it's your turn to answer, where are we? Ball Arena, good, good. Scene two, we're in Denver again. And you walk in, when you walk in, just to the left there are these velvet ropes that are leading to a ticket booth. And once you get your ticket, you kind of walk into the main area and right as you do, there's these large prehistoric creatures, bones, potentially even dinosaurs. And you turn the corner and then you walk down this really long hall that's three uh, three stories high. On one side, there's Egyptian mummies displayed. You go a little bit further, there's exhibits of outer space and space exploration. On the other side, you know, there's a display of Native Americans and indigenous cultures in the Rocky Mountains. And just beyond all of that, there's the main feature. There's an IMAX movie theater showing something about volcanoes. And then there's a planetarium talking about something about dark holes in the universe. So again, where are we? Yeah, that's right. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Okay, we're getting warmed up. Number three. This time you're in Littleton. This one's a little bit harder, okay? You walk into a small group home where everything is scheduled. It is regimented, okay? People wake up right at 5 a.m. There's quiet hours from 5 to 6 a.m. Breakfast takes place promptly at 7.05, no later. Coffee hours are at 5.30 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. Lunch is on time as scheduled every day, 12.30 p.m. Naps and quiet hours take place from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Dinner at 5. And then there's quiet time until 7. And then folks read from 7.45 to 8.30. Everyone's in bed by 8.30. Lights are out by 9. And everyone's asleep at 9.05. Where are you? 
<laughs> You're at Daniel's house, that's right. For those of you who know me. You might have been tempted to say retirement home, but you'd be wrong. It just goes to prove I'm actually an 87-year-old in a 34-year-old's body. Final scene, it's, it's 1015. And there's this large mass of people gathered. They come from all different backgrounds, but they seem connected to each other on some really deep level. And you walk into this large mass, and these people range from ages all the way down to one week old, all the way up sometimes into their 90s, 98 years old, sometimes even older than that. And one of the main things that this group does is they read from an ancient book throughout their gathering. They sing and they praise someone they can't see. And at the middle of their time together, a man gets up. He's really good looking. And he speaks to them. He speaks to them for 40 minutes, sometimes 50, sometimes 60, 67 at one time. And he reads from the ancient book and he teaches them. And then after that, they eat a meal together. But there's something interesting about this meal. It's just a, it's just a morsel of bread, just a little bit of wine. And throughout this gathering, all the way through, they, they close their eyes and they talk again to somebody that they can't see. So you answer now, where, where are we? Yeah, we're at church. But there's actually more to this. We are also in the presence of Jesus. We're actually in the body of Christ. Hold on to that thought, okay? We are in the presence of Jesus because we are in the body of Christ. We rehearsed this last week, so you'll remember this. Jesus, in his last meal, the communion meal, with his disciples, he gave his disciples a promise. He wanted to assure them of this great comfort, this great promise, before he left them. He said in John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him. For he will dwell with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That was Jesus' final promise. It's great words of comfort. Don't let your hearts be troubled, disciples. Yes, I'm leaving you. This body you see with you right now, this physical body, it's about to be crucified and died. It's about to be laid in a grave. It's about to be resurrected. And then on another day, I will physically ascend into heaven. You won't be able to see me as you see me now. You won't be able to hear me. As you hear me now, you won't be able to talk with me or live with me or feast with me in the way that you do now, but don't let your hearts be troubled. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come. I will send my spirit, even the spirit of truth, and when he comes, I will be present with you again. 
Even though my physical body will be in heaven, I will come to you. That's my promise. Jesus, these last words, they're unpacked later on in Scripture by the Apostle Paul. Paul was actually a close friend with Luke who wrote the book of Acts. And in describing what Jesus is talking about here, he gives this vivid image of what Jesus is talking about. He unpacks it for us and says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Even though Jesus' physical body is in heaven, by his spirit, he makes his followers part of a new body. A body of which he is the head and his followers are the members. When sinners repent and trust in Jesus... Even though Jesus physically is separated from them by his spirit, he unites them to himself. He creates a new people, the church, a new body, the body of Christ. And that body, in that body, we can be in his presence forever. It's actually exactly what Jesus did after Pentecost. Remember, we talked about Pentecost last week. When Jesus poured out his spirit after ascending into heaven on his disciples and Peter gets up and he exhorts this mass gathering, this mass crowd, he exhorts them, telling them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And we read in verse 41 that at this, at this word, Those who received Peter's word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What began as a small body, a a small body of just 120 disciples made up almost exclusively of Galilean Jews. That small body on one day is multiplied 26 times to over 3,000 new members. 3,000 new members Some from Mesopotamia to the north, others from Rome to the west, others from Egypt to the east and Arabia to the south. Some were Druze, others were proselytes. And just like Jesus promised and Paul unpacked, by the Spirit, these early Christians, though many, were all baptized into one body, united to Christ, the living head, a new people, a church emerges. And in verse 42, what we're going to really focus in on this morning, what I want us to spend most of our time on, is what this new body, this church, devoted themselves to specifically. They devoted themselves, the text says, to four practices. You see the first in verse 42, it says, first, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now you look through the book of Acts. And you get a sense of what the apostles' teaching entailed. Whenever the apostles taught, they they had this distinct pattern. They would look at the scriptures. They would take out the scriptures. In their case, it was the Old Testament. They would read the scriptures. They would explain what it meant. Then they would show how all of those scriptures in some way were fulfilled by Jesus, in some way how they pointed to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And then they took those applications, they took those principles, and they applied it to anyone who wanted to listen and hear and obey Jesus. That was their teaching. You remember last week, that that was Peter's pattern. What did he do? He opened up Joel chapter 2, a prophecy from 600 years before. 
And then he opened up Psalm chapter 16, a thousand years before, written by David. And then Psalm 110, also written by David. He explained their meaning, showed how they were fulfilled in Jesus, and called people to respond, to repent, applying it to their lives, and calling them to submit to the message. That's the pattern that's replicated. You see it throughout Acts by Stephen, Philip, Paul, and then many others. When churches gathered, they came together, and one of the central parts of their identity as a new body, as the body of Christ, was to sit under the apostles' teaching. I want you to think with me here. This act, this devotion, this practice is so utterly unique, especially today. Look at the United States today, and we have organizations that are committed to doing amazing things. They are committed to doing good things. For instance, uh, just down the road, there's Food Bank of the Rockies. And Food Bank of the Rockies does amazing good. They're committed to providing food and resources to people in need throughout Colorado. Big brothers, big sisters, they're committed to mentoring teens and kids from difficult backgrounds across the United States. We have other organizations that combat human trafficking, that raise money for the terminally ill, that teach immigrants and refugees to speak English because it's not their native language. All of these programs, all of these organizations, all of these groups are committed to doing amazing things. But there is only one organization, one institution, one body that week in, week out, 52 weeks of the year devotes themselves to this unique practice that devotes themselves to the teaching of the apostles from this ancient book. Think about that. 40 minutes out of your week, you come and, and you hear from an ancient text written long ago because the apostles did that very same thing because it's the central thing that makes the church the church. As a church, we could do many things. We could do many of the good things that we see other organizations doing. They're needed in our community, but no other organization outside of the church, this body, will do this. No other organization will devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, share the apostles' teaching with those who've never heard it, invite others to hear the apostles' teaching for salvation. No other institution will teach children the riches and goodness of the apostles' teaching because this practice is the central part of the church's identity. In fact, you see this throughout history that when an otherwise healthy church, an otherwise healthy body of Christ begins to deviate from this practice of devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, what you see is that body slowly but surely begins to grow sick and then grow sicker and then grow sicker still and eventually dies because this once central part of the identity of the body of Christ becomes an afterthought. You actually can see this in a sister denomination of the denomination that we're in. We're in the Presbyterian Church in America. I'm not going to name this other denomination, but if you look at statistics for this denomination, in 1983, they had 3.4 million members. And then beginning in 1984, membership for the first time began to drop. And from 1983 to 1993, membership started to drop slowly. It decreased about 1% for 10 straight years. 
And then the drop began to speed up in the next 10 years to about 2.5%, then 3 to 4% for another 10 years. And then in the years 2013 to 2023, it started to drop 4, 5, 6.5, sometimes 7% over the last 10 years, where now this church that was once 3.4 million people now has just over 1 million members. That's an average loss of over 57,500 members a year for 40 straight years. And nobody here is a prophet. Nobody has the vantage point of God. Nobody can say, okay, this is exactly what happened to that denomination. But we can say one thing for sure, that it's a very obvious factor That denomination, not in full, but in part, has deviated from the central identifying factor of what makes a church body a church body. They've deviated from the apostles' teaching. Just to give you an example, one of the pastors in this denomination in 2021 during COVID, this pastor was interviewed by the Chicago Sun-Times about their church body and what they were doing during COVID. And the very first question that was asked was very explicit. This is, the, this is the T-ball question, okay? The question was, is Jesus the only way to heaven? Is Jesus, God and man, incarnate, in the flesh, born of the Spirit, who lived a perfect life and was crucified for our sins, is that the only way? Is he the only way to have eternal life in heaven with God? And the pastor's response was no. God's not a Christian. I mean, we are. For me, the Christian tradition is a way to understand God and my relationship with the world and other humans. And it's the way for me to move into that relationship. But I'm not about to say what God can and can't do in other ways with other spiritual experiences. And and you don't even have to dig down deep to, to see what's going on within this denomination, because this this pastor wasn't alone. In fact, when it started to kind of go into a nosedive around the year 2013, right around that time, the denomination actually put out a poll to all the pastors within the denomination. And one of the questions was, do you agree or disagree with this statement? Only followers of Jesus can be saved. 45% of the pastors responded, No, I disagree. Compare that with the apostles' teaching. Look at at Acts chapter 3. If you look just ahead, the very next story, Peter and John, they're walking up to the temple to go and teach, to teach publicly, to call people to repentance, to believe in Jesus, be incorporated into his body. And as they're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer in the ninth hour, they see there's a man who always stood by this gate called the beautiful gate. Everybody knew this man because he was a man who was crippled from birth. He couldn't walk. He'd never been able to have strength enough to walk on his own two feet. And he's there begging for alms because it's the only way that he can make a living. And as they're walking past this man, he's crying out, please, can you provide for me? And Peter and John, they they go up and they look the man in the face and they say, silver and gold we do not have, but this is what we do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. (laughs) And miraculously, 
This man who had never stood on the soles of his feet for the very first time stood up and he walked with Peter, with John, to the temple courts for the very first time. And everybody is amazed. How did this miracle just take place by the hands of these apostles? And Peter stands up once again, just like he did at Pentecost, and says, hey, this isn't, this isn't something that is unfounded. You know what's going on among you. He says, quote, Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only name under heaven whereby a person can be made right with God through his sacrifice on the cross. There is no other way to eternal life. After all, it was just the the teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus himself on that very same night that He gave the promise that he would send his Holy Spirit. He was asked by Thomas. Thomas said, Lord, you're leaving us. We don't know the way. And Jesus said, Thomas, you know the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the apostles' teaching, the exclusivity of Jesus, his sacrifice for human sin, his sacrifice for your sin is the only way that a person can have eternal life and fellowship with God. There is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. So this first church, the body of Christ, they devoted themselves to that teaching. The central part of their identity was this teaching, the church the only body, the only institution and organization. It's devoted and charged by Jesus to follow this pattern of the apostles, to follow this practice, to week in, week out, Sunday after Sunday, 52 weeks a year, sometimes Christmas Eve, so make it 53 weeks out of the year. Open up the scriptures, read the scriptures, explain the scriptures, show how Jesus is the center of the scriptures, and then apply the scriptures to anyone who's within earshot. That was their practice. Second, notice it says that this body devoted themselves also to the fellowship. Verse 42, the the Greek word there for fellowship is koinonia. It means simply sharing or participation. It means that these disciples devoted themselves to living life together. They were once separate individuals with no real commonality, once following God kind of in their own way, now united to Christ, the head, by his spirit, and united to one another in this body and devoting themselves to sharing life together. You see how seriously they took this as well. If you look at verse 44, it, it, it shows how seriously they took this fellowship. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And as they hear the apostles' teaching, it says, day by day, they were attending the temple together. And they also shared meals together, breaking bread in their homes. And just note here, because some people have questions here, this isn't communism. Okay, communism is the state 
forcing a group of people to forsake private property and individual ownership in order to communally own the means of production. No, this is a voluntary practice, a devotion of every member by the Spirit of Christ to share all of life together as one body. So that if a member in the body suffers, every other individual person sees it as their individual responsibility as another member to assist that person who is suffering. They grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. If a member of the body can't find work, then every other member commits themselves to financially supporting that other member. If a member of that body became widowed, then every other member committed themselves for caring for that widow's daily needs. This, this became such a factor, such a reality in the life of the early church that they had to actually create a church office dedicated to supporting widows, to supporting those who were vulnerable and supporting those who were needy. It's called deacons. We're going to see that later in the book of Acts. And this devotion to this fellowship, it became such a distinctive mark of the church that people all throughout Rome started to notice it. In fact, there's a letter called the Epistle of Diognetus. It's a document from the early 100s AD, and it's describing the communal life of Christians together. It, it says, quote, Christians live in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They have a common table but not a common bed. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws in their lives, doing good to all and to one another beyond what the law commands. They love all and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute and yet they enjoy complete abundance together. There's times, I think back to 2021 or so, when I was really depressed. And I can remember at times when I was in this really dark space, and it was in a Deer Creek small group with other men. We gathered in Morrison, and we drank beer and ate pizza. But it was in sharing all my deep struggles. It was in sharing the dark thoughts that I had, that, that these men prayed for me without ceasing. They mourned with those who mourned. And I can look back at that and I can say, thank God that those men took seriously the fellowship and prayed with me constantly without ceasing. I can think back to times when I needed counseling, so I would ask the deacons, I'd ask the session of our church to pay for counseling resources for me because, you know, financially it's hard to pay for your mental health. I can remember times when I was in financial trouble and I asked benevolence teams at a, at a different church to help Hannah and I when we were in crisis because I knew that this was a reality, the fellowship, the koinonia, the caring and sharing of life together. You know, it's not uncommon today, there's this sentiment that goes around, and it's well-intentioned. It's well-intentioned. But folks will say, I know I've heard it, you probably heard it. People will say, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I follow Jesus, but I don't need the church. My, my faith is, is personal. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't think it's necessary. In other words, my personal relationship with God, that's primary. But church, that community, that body, that institution, whatever you want to call it, that fellowship, it's secondary. 
It's like the old Mark Twain adage, right? I love God, but not once he gets under a roof. After all, the the church is hypocritical. It's filled with people who are pretending like they're perfect. Most churchgoers, they're judgmental. They're too political. They think they're better than everyone else. I'm going to focus on me and my relationship with God. That's primary. All that other stuff, that's secondary. Now, I'm convinced if you read through the New Testament, if you read through the Old Testament too, but if you read through the New Testament, if... If Peter or John or Andrew or Paul or any of the other earliest followers of Jesus or apostles were to hear that sentiment, they would be absolutely dumbfounded. They would be like my kids when they're watching me shave in the morning like, whoa, that's a little unnerving. I don't know what's going on there. They would say something like, wait, you think of the things you just accused Christians of. Hypocrisy, perfectionism, judgmentalism, politicism, thinking you're better than everyone else-ism. Okay, well, first, does that describe you in any way? You know, because just pointing out another person's flaws and struggles, that doesn't absolve you from those same flaws and struggles. Aren't those the very reason that we actually need Jesus in the first place? That's like saying, the church is full of sinners, so I'm going to follow Jesus. Well, Well, yeah, that's what makes this church body, this body so remarkable that God, the God of the universe would unite himself by his spirit to a body of sinners and lay down his life, devoting himself to that fellowship where they are forced to love other hypocrites. This body where they're forced to forgive those who are judgmental, this body that seeks to share life together with those who disagree with them politically. Can you imagine how radically countercultural that is, not just then, but today? This body that needs to remind each other over and over and over again that no one is perfect in this body except for the living head who is Jesus Christ. This body who is devoted to living lives for one another because Jesus has lived his life for us individually. If Jesus laid down his life for that member of the body, devoted his life to that member of the body, don't you think following him should entail you doing the same? The reality is that sentiment of It's just me and Jesus. I don't need the fellowship. That is found absolutely nowhere in Scripture, and it really wasn't found anywhere throughout Christian history for about 1,900 years. It's a sentiment that's not rooted in the Bible. It's rooted in a Western American culture devoted to a life of individualism, devoted to me, myself, and I. I did it my way. It's my life. It's now or never. I ain't going to live forever. I just want to live my life. It is a sentiment rooted in Frank Sinatra and John Bon Jovi. In that sentiment, even when it starts to barely crop up in the pages of the New Testament, the apostles are quick to squash it. Remember what Paul said? For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For the body does not consist of one member. Let me read that again. So the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, 
all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It begs the question, if the church is the body of Christ and Jesus is the head of that very same body, how can you be connected to the head if you're not connected to the body? Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus, in some ways, miraculously, outside of his normal, ordained, ordinary will, can save people that are outside of the body and connect them into the head. He can do that. But ordinarily, it's through the body connected to the head that we enjoy fellowship with the living head, Jesus Christ. Just as ordinarily... In order to get to church, I walk out of my house, I get in my Toyota Tundra, I drive down Ken Carroll, I drive down Pierce, and I arrive at the church parking lot. Ordinarily, that's how I do it. Now, extraordinarily, I can walk out my door and time and space can whoop, and I can just get plopped here into the parking lot, but I'm not going to make my life on that. Ordinarily, Jesus, the living head, unites people into his body where they enjoy fellowship with him. These 3,000 new Christians were in this fellowship because following Jesus primarily entails sharing koinonia life together in this body primarily. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. And look again, verse 32, it says, thirdly, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And if you look at verse 42 again, and, and you look at it closely, do you see how all of these practices are phrased? They all have the definite article, the. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the prayers, and the breaking of bread. This is different from verse 46, because you, you look at verse 46, and it says, and day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread... In their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 46 is referring generally to breaking bread, enjoying a meal together in homes throughout the week. But verse 42 is talking about the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. It is a meal given to the church by Jesus himself, a meal to be practiced together when the body gathers on the Lord's day. And it was a deeply comforting thing that Jesus gave this sacrament for. On the same night that Jesus made the promise to send his Holy Spirit, he also instituted this sacrament. On the night he was betrayed, we're told that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Think about how comforting this meal must have been to their ears. These are men and women who had followed Jesus throughout the course of his ministry, throughout three years. These men and women were able to talk with Jesus, walk with Jesus, sit with Jesus, feast with Jesus, see Jesus, touch Jesus, hug Jesus. And here's Jesus just 
one day before he's about to be delivered over for crucifixion, just weeks before he's about to ascend into heaven and never be seen again physically by these disciples. And here he is saying, this is my body. And this is my blood. Even though a day is coming, you're not going to be able to see me the way you see me now. Even though I'm going to depart into heaven, you're not going to be able to touch me. Even though I'm leaving, I won't be able to share a meal and feast with you as I am now. Here's a way you can taste and see and touch my goodness, my grace in my absence. Here's a way you can feast with me even though I'm seated at the right hand of God. Anybody ever read Calvin and Hobbes? When I was just a boy, I used to go get the Denver Post and when Papers were only a nickel, right? I'd go down, I'd get a Denver Post, I'd come back, I'd, I'd read Calvin and Hobbes. It's the story of a six-year-old Calvin and his stuffed tiger. His name is Hobbes. And at times, usually, usually when adults are around, Hobbes is just a small stuffed animal. You know, no, no bigger than your hand, and he's usually off in a corner somewhere. No life, he's distant. Nothing other than that. But at other times, and it's typically when Calvin is alone, and it's just him and Hobbes, Hobbes comes to life. He becomes a real flesh and blood tiger. You know, he actually wrestles Calvin and he plays with Calvin. He eats with Calvin. He jokes with Calvin. He slaps him on the back and they're always getting into trouble. And now this is lost today, but that's precisely what's happening in the Lord's Supper. Is that through Jesus and his spirit, though he is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, by his spirit, in the breaking of bread, he is present again with us. He comes to us so that we can taste and see and touch his goodness. Jesus actually feasts with us and is present with us in this meal. It is a participation in the body of Christ. It's a participation in the blood of Christ. You didn't realize Bill Watterson was such a profound theologian, did you? Actually, the theologian of the 16th century, his name was John Calvin, he put it in these terms. He said, even though it seems unbelievable that Christ's flesh, separated from us in heaven, becomes our spiritual food, let us remember how great the power of the Holy Spirit towers above our senses. What then our mind cannot comprehend, let faith conceive and receive, that the Spirit of Christ truly unites us to Christ the head in this meal. Through the Lord's Supper, by the Spirit, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus makes himself present among us. Calvin continues, he says, Where we see the symbols of bread and wine... This is important. Notice he's saying they're symbols. They don't actually become the literal body of Christ and the literal blood of Christ. They're symbols. But nonetheless, he says there's a spiritual mystery. Whenever we see the symbols of bread and wine appointed by the Lord, think and be persuaded of this truth, that the thing signified is surely present with us in the symbols. No wonder the disciples devoted themselves to this practice, to the breaking of bread. No wonder this was their practice because when they did it, they realized they were communing. They were in the presence of Jesus himself again. 
Before Jesus ascended into heaven, remember, he made that promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And that's exactly what he does. Even though Jesus physically is in heaven by his Holy Spirit, he unites us to himself and he creates a new body, the church. And in this body, we can be in his presence always. You realize in this body, we can hear from Jesus. When we hear the apostles' teaching, when we hear the scriptures taught, Jesus is speaking to us, telling us, no matter what you've done, no matter your hypocrisy, no matter your failures, no matter your sins, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are my treasured possession. I can say that because I've devoted myself to you. I've laid down my life for you. In this body, we can be with Jesus' family, sharing life together by devoting ourselves to the fellowship. We can feast with Jesus, participate in his body, participate in his blood, in the breaking of the bread. We can feast with the risen Lord Jesus. It's actually one of the reasons that beginning in November, our session has decided that we're going to move not just from monthly communion, but we're going to be doing weekly Lord's Supper, weekly communion at Deer Creek Church. And all God's people said, Amen. some of you are like, eh, I still don't know how I feel about that, but that's okay. And the reason is because we realize Christ in this meal is with us. We can have his word and his sacrament together so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good and we can be comforted by his presence week in, week out as he fulfills his promise, I will not leave you as orphans. I realize there's questions about this. Well, won't the Lord's Supper become, you know, less special? Not if this is your view. Not if your view is that Jesus meets us in the bread and meets us in the cup and he wants to feast with us and be near us and, and we get a taste and see his goodness week in and week out. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and lastly, they devoted themselves in this body to the prayers. Verse 42, to the prayers. In this body, we can hear Jesus, we can see Jesus, we can experience Jesus, and we can also talk to Jesus. Just as if he was with us face to face. In this body, when we devote ourselves to the prayers, together we come to him week in, week out, asking him for renewed grace, asking him for forgiveness, praising him for his goodness, talking with him as if he is present among us because he is he is. Friends, you came to church this morning, but as the OxyClean guy says, but wait, there's more. <laughs> You've also come into the presence of Jesus. You've come into the presence of Jesus. He has not left you as an orphan. He has come to us. You are in the body of Christ, united to him, our living head. That, can you see why verse 43 makes sense now? <laughs> Verse 43 says, and awe, a godly fear and reverence before a holy God, an awe as if people were standing in the presence of God himself came upon every soul. Just as Moses stood before the burning bush, just as Joshua fell on his face before the angel of the Lord, just as Isaiah looked into heaven and quaked with fear, saying, woe is me at the sight of God on his throne, so too 
When this new people, this new body came together, they knew we are in the presence of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus himself. Wow. And Deer Creek, if that's true, can I exhort some of us today? If Jesus is really present among us, if he's really here with us, why on earth would you ever want to miss it? Just yesterday, you know, I was here working on this sermon. It was actually this part of the sermon. It was interesting. But it was 10.30, so I went outside to go watch the solar eclipse. And I get on three jackets, mittens, and a woolen cap, because, again, I'm 87. <laughs> and I'm out there. I'm out in the parking lot right out in front. And I'm looking up at this ring of fire, this amazing reality, this once-in-a-lifetime event, a ring of fire. And I look over to the right, because there, there are workers working on the, you know, in the neighborhood over here. And there's one guy in a worker truck. And he's got AirPods in his ears. And he's looking down at his iPhone, looking at the TikToks or something. And all the while, there's a ring of fire in the air. My only thought is, what on earth is this dipstick doing? Doesn't he know what's going on? He's here watching kitten videos. If we're in the presence of Jesus, by his spirit in this body, why would you ever want to miss it? Where Jesus is present there, his people will gather to experience his goodness. Where Jesus is present, and like it says, verse 47, there you will find his body praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord will add to their number day by day those who are being saved. Because where Jesus is, he attracts his people to himself to come and taste and see that he is good. And to comfort them with this prophet promise, he has not left us as orphans. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in the 16th century, it opens with these words, asking, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Church, you are united to the living head, Jesus Christ. He has not left you as an orphan. Let's taste and see how good he is. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good to us. And we are not our own, but we do belong to you. In our bodies, in our souls, in life and in death, we belong to you, our faithful Savior, Jesus. And Jesus, you are here among us. You are present among us. You speak to us week in and week out on the Lord's day through the apostles' teaching, through the scriptures. And you've not left us as orphans. You've given us 
Even though your physical body is in heaven, you have given us this new body, a body of your members to minister to one another, to grieve with those who grieve, to mourn with those who mourn, to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we can speak to you, Jesus. We're doing it now. In your name, by your sacrifice, you intercede, you ever live to intercede for us as you sit next to the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus, we get a taste and see that you're good. Jesus, thank you for never abandoning us, never forsaking us, for always being with us as a good and faithful shepherd as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus, continue to minister to us. And as we sing now of your glory, your goodness, Jesus, would you remind us that we're your own, united to you, never to be forsaken because of your great grace. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.